Hey, David. Hey, Susanna. How's it going? What's new with you? Um, you know, it's going really, really well, actually. Yeah? Yeah, it's like I feel like the fall is sort of happening. I'm enjoying mm-hmm. apple season! Yes. That, was, that was me trying to get excited about... You look yeah. like you're doing the Oprah gif right now I with am. the arms. I'm doing the Oprah gif arm. Gif, <laughs> gif. I'm a gif We're man. not having that debate. I'm a gif man. But no, I feel really great. It feels... <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of kind of act like fall I guess activity in the air mm-hmm. uh, myself like I just had to have a tree removed because I'm going solar so I'm like basically my my outdoor gym is complete because I'm just like hauling all that wood gigantic yeah like cuts of wood Logs. yep stacking them up for a future firewood and enjoying the extra sunlight that I'm getting on my home in preparation nice. for going solar that's very exciting yeah how about you uh, I'm good. I just, I mean, I'm loving the autumn stuff. We just went to the corn maze mm-hmm. this past weekend. Um, PSA, not as fun to pull a toddler <laughs> in a wagon through a corn maze as you think it is. I, yes, so, I feel for you. Maybe wait till the kids can like run through it themselves. Yeah, fair game. I, I heard the, the right same thing from that. my partner who was with yeah. you with our twins. So I assume yeah. it was twice the fun for her. Yeah. <laughs> there was some pushing of the twin wagon. Yeah. Pushing and pulling. Well, thank you for your help. My pleasure. My pleasure. But, I mean, all this does seem it's just kind of, like, weirdly warm right now. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like this autumn is kind of, like, delayed or warm or something. The leaves have just started changing, and it's the middle of October. Yeah, totally. Well, according to average temperatures, it, it usually doesn't fall below 50 in October. Huh. So I think, I think like, we're more or less on track, but maybe it's because summer was just so, so hot, and we're, you know, ready for sweater weather, and I don't know, I'm, I'm just ready for warm drinks and, like, roasty fires and stuff. But, right? yeah, it seems like it's maybe not cooling down enough or like fast enough or something yeah and that's totally the thing about climate change you know it's like it's it's really hard to connect the intellectual conversations with what's actually happening i feel like we just get so caught up in the conversations and the consequences and it's you know it's literally the climate changing (laughs) yes yes, the weather the climate the weather patterns when the seasons fall all these things are shifting i remember yeah like my my anecdotal reference is always like i remember when i was a kid growing up in new york city there were some halloweens where it was like so cold where i have to like do i have to like build that consideration into my costume right and i still remember some sort of like teenage Halloween's sort of trekking out into the snow, like the wow. crunchy snow in my costume. Wow. And that's definitely not been the case for the last, you know, decade and a half. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a big relief to have a president and a, a government that's kind of finally digging into this stuff too. Yes. And that is, of course, going to be the topic uh, for our podcast this week. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's do it. Trump just completely ignored climate change or actively discouraged looking into it for his four years. And then Biden comes in and right away, big action, big talk, big goals, pledges to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions at least by half by 2030, which is in nine years, people. No, it's so crazy to think that's nine years away. And it's a total 180, you're right, of like policy and of posture. And I really hope it works. Like this envelope of nine years is a critical, critical time to pump the brakes on Mm -hmm. how much damage we're actively doing, how much CO2 we're actively releasing into the atmosphere. And 
yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, there's the policy changes, there's the rhetoric, there's this sort of, like I call it the posture change, but really what I'm interested to think about is are people going to come along, not just like the everyday people, but the people that also represent them in the halls of power. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of unbelievable that it, that question is still TBD. Yeah. It's like we have so much science and conversation mm-hmm. and policy and, you know, solutions to the problem. And there's still people who are either focusing on other things or uh, still don't believe yeah. it's happening, yeah. which is wild. It is. And I think that there's um, like a willful, there's got to be some part of it that's like a willful ignorance, right? Because it's not, I mean, it's like beyond even science. You can feel this in all corners of our economy and our everyday lives. Like climate change is battering us. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I am really glad that uh, Biden back in January, he asked a bunch of the different federal agencies to put together reports on what impacts of climate change are already happening and and what they're going to be. Um, Because it feels like, you know, with the sort of like dearth of uh, focus we had on it during Trump's uh, era, just people still aren't getting it. Like across the nation, you know, people we're talking to are getting it, but across the nation... People just still aren't getting it. And, you know, I'm hopeful that from this, you know, sort of more federal support yep. and uh, a look into it and these agencies saying it's real, people are going to start getting it more. Yeah, totally. And I, I think there's like, depending on where you live, that federal or national conversation has come down to the local level. I know we're getting excited for like a podcast field trip in the coming weeks to go to the New York State House of Kingston, basically. Uh, to basically discuss their short-term plan by short-term, I mean like next few years, to meet some of the state goals, which are equally, if not more progressive than some of the sort of federal guidelines that have been laid out. So like the progress is happening in some places, but really like you're, you're pointing out, you know, it takes that broad federal view. And like you said, Biden's kind of like, you know, putting out the order for people to report back in with what some of the symptoms of climate change may be and where the effects may be felt. Yes. So um, all this was also summarized in a New York Times article, which we will put in the show notes if you want to go dig into it as well. Uh, Some of the things that the agencies are coming out with is, of course, you know, if it's hotter Mm -hmm. and it'll be both hotter and colder, right? It's like climate is changing in general, but if it's hotter. I still remember when global warming was the catchphrase, not climate change. It was like global warming can sometimes mean global cooling, right? Right. It's like the effects are going to be felt in waves and in different places. Sorry. Sorry to cut you off. No, that's okay. Um, so if it's hotter, when it's hotter, that also is going to mean more floods and droughts. Like temperature changing affects rainfall. That's bad for farming. Yep. I mean, we saw it here. We had a farmer friend who lost all of one of their beds because it was just literally underwater. Their oh plants gosh. were underwater, like six inches because oh of gosh. the huge dump of water we had. Yep. Um, all that extra moisture means more pests. So bugs, mice, fungal diseases. I've never had a fungal problem in my garden before, but this year there's mold all over my sunflowers. That's not even a flower that's prone to mold. Also, Susanna, you've like hot and humid. You've like hit on my secret, like my adversary of my life is mold. Is it really? Yeah, like you said fungal, and I reacted like most people react to the word moist. (laughs) Oh wait, they're both based in too much moisture. Okay, let's continue. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, my garden is just a little microcosm. Like, who cares if you can't grow sunflowers? But imagine if that is happening to every farm in the Northeast. Yeah. If they're just plagued with fungal problems and pests. So agricultural department said loud and clear, 
food supply is going to be majorly impacted by climate changes because we rely on the climate to function a certain way to grow food. Hmm. Makes total sense. So I've, I've read the article as well, obviously, in preparation. And I heard that what was this stuff about housing? Like how like, you know, that feels like it's not necessarily a climate change thing. Like Agriculture, I get like, right. I can almost feel that truth in my body. Like I get it. But like housing, that's not a climate change thing, right? It says, oh, wait, it says here that the Department of Housing and Urban Development says that affordable housing is, quote, is increasingly at risk from both extreme weather events and sea level rise. Okay, so so housing, like our shelters, right, aren't ready for these extremes of weather either, right? Like that's what we're saying? Right. Hmm. Yeah, it's not just weather. It's, okay, well, what is weather impact? It's definitely farming. It's definitely housing and shelter. The standards that we have, our building codes that, you know, there's a certain wind rating that every community has mm -hmm. that, that your structure has to withstand to meet the code. And those are changing, you know? Right. Our buildings are just not made to withstand the extreme weather events that we're about to start getting. Right, and much like we were discussing in an earlier episode, some of those like kind of trends from moving sustainability conversations and building standards from actual sustainability in terms of their output of CO2 or of like the sort of elements that we consider a green building traditionally and moving them towards this like resiliency posture. If we tie that concept to the fact that like the haves are going to get that sort of rehabilitation and that reinforcement mm -hmm. first and the have nots will obviously be last in line as with most of the other distribution of resources in the, in the country, I can absolutely now understand why those communities that are more prone to flooding already more prone to damage from climate change are only going to be more extremely in the path of destruction, essentially. Yeah. More vulnerable than they were before. Absolutely. And another place that we see that big gap is, of course, in healthcare, mm. right? Yes. Very easy for the haves to get good healthcare, very difficult for have nots yep. to get good healthcare. Health and Human Services is saying, look out for more disease. Oh, of course. Right. You know, because, okay, you're like, but climate change, well, if the climate is changing, then ticks and mosquitoes, their life cycles are going to be impacted, yeah. uh, you know, positively for them. They get a longer <laughs> season you, to live, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. But that's not so good for us no. because tick, I mean, especially in our area, Lyme disease mm -hmm. and other tick-borne illnesses are huge. Mosquito-borne illnesses could get more, uh, you know, more prevalent and, and bigger I and more they're carrying This year I heard they were carrying an even wider range of, you know, viruses and diseases. So it's like... If these insects are getting stronger and if they have more contact with animals they usually don't, we could see an increased risk, not only of like increased Lyme and the stuff we're used to, but, you know, I remember like Zika scares and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Like we are in New York, at least approaching on a 10 year continuum, like a near tropical biome, you know? Right. So it's like, should we be preparing ourselves for these kinds of insect blooms? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a huge effect. Yeah. And they also talk about mental health. Mm. You know, which we often don't consider a disease, but mental health is a real thing. Yeah. And if we are constantly trying to keep up with natural disaster after natural disaster and all the systems around us are failing, that's not good for mental health. No. Like that's definitely going to be a downward spiral. We've already seen that starting to happen in just the pandemic time, yeah, you know, can people take struggling. Pandemic is a sort of like uh, microcosm. It's, it's apples and oranges, obviously a public health crisis versus, you know, a climate change that affects literally the entire world. But this is on scale, a really great example of how those public health um, institutions can't really serve the population on, on scale. 
right? So this is this is a great example. It's apples to oranges, but it's definitely a, an interesting comparable. I, I love that every agency contributed because it's really important to see how this is not just like a, a huge problem of scale, but it's also broadly distributed, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to affect everything. Everything. You know, education. Uh, how many days do kids miss uh, of school based on big weather events? Transportation, like asphalt we see breaks down uh, when it's overly hot conditions over a long period of time. Bad roads mean more traffic. Flights getting delayed or canceled. Homeland Security says to look out for more migration, of course, migration events, because weather will ruin infrastructure in other places. And people have for a long time and will continue to come to America seeking a better life, a more stable life, right? And that not just America, but like immigration around the world, there's massive migration and migrant problems. Problem By problems, I'm not saying like from the place of the xenophobia of like receiving these people, but like the people are being uprooted from their homes. That's yes. a massive problem. It's a massive problem from their their familial and cultural heritages. It's crazy. So like, okay, it seems big, right? It seems like a huge hulking problem. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah, good question. Luckily, Biden has a plan for big changes. Wow, nice trumpet. Thank you. I, I saw a note here to, to do trumpet, and so I figured I'd give it my all. I mean, all. that's I mean that's the key. we got to give it our all. So you've got um, this big plan. Big plan because it's under attack. Wah, 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 wah. Was <laughs> yeah. that is that okay? No, Sad no. trombone. Wah, 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 wah. I just don't know if it's like copyrighted, so I had to like change it a little. <laughs> the Sonics couldn't be. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So let's talk about what's in these two big bills because this is kind of what he's proposing. They're two bills that are up right now. They're both huge, yep. huge in terms of scope and dollars kind of eye popping but biden really wants them to go through so that when we go to scotland for the u.n climate summit which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks yep. um we have a real action to back up big words right because he's planning to go and to try to get more world leaders in line with doing climate action but if he can't make that happen here at home he's gonna look pretty silly saying all that without any action at home so um, also, Democrats have a pretty thin margin right now, yes. as we all know, um, and Republicans don't seem to be feeling the same urgency around preventing climate change as Dems do. So if Dems do lose their margin in 2022, then it's very possible that this is kind of feeling like our last big chance to make an impact legislatively simply because the Republicans don't, just don't seem to be as interested in making legislation to prevent climate change. Right, so there's two big pieces. There's the budget package and the $1 trillion infrastructure package. The second one's more about climate resiliency. And I think, generally speaking, because it's more traditional infrastructure, it's like you know roads and bridges and stuff, it seems like that will kind of pass through and the Republicans are kind of more into it. They're, there's more supportive of that overall. Right. Trillion dollar yeah. package. Yeah. yeah, there's more stuff in there to make us resilient to big weather events. So that would be things like money to improve flood defenses, um, limiting wildfires, money for developing new drinking water sources, um, and even money to help relocate communities that are in high risk areas. Um, so that would all do a lot of good, but it's not really fighting the problem. It's just preparing us for the outcomes. It's more about adaptation. Right. It's the Band-Aid, not the sort of full-on surgery to reconstruct and change the way that this system works. Right. And the juicy stuff that to change the way this system works 
is in that, well, formally proposed as a $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. That's the stuff like um, the EV tax incentive mm-hmm. boost that we were talking about a couple weeks ago and a whole lot more. Everything from like child care to, you know, reforming the, the systems and the protections around certain types of labor. It's a transformative bill. Um, and one of the bigger pieces of that is the $150 billion clean electricity performance program, which would reward utilities, reward utilities uh, that generate more electricity from wind, solar, nuclear, or other clean or renewable energy sources and penalize or penalize, depending on how you pronounce that word, <laughs> those that do not. Uh, we're trying to get uh, the United States to get about like 80% of its electricity from sources that don't generate carbon dioxide by 2030 which is about double of the current rate. So it's going to take that kind of transformative action, whether it's punitive or you know rewarding, but those systems do need to be in place to move the needle as fast as we need to. Yes, there are also tax credits for residential folks who wanna go solar on their properties, making sure the existing federal tax credit sticks around, maybe even increasing it back mm-hmm. to the 30%. It's at 26 right now. And that's a big discount for most people who want to go solar at home. I mean, you know, yeah. you're doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Taking a quarter or a third off the price. Like, yes, please. Yeah, I'd be happy to miss that boat if more people can get on solar next year or whenever this thing goes through, for sure. That's a, that's a huge, huge savings. And it makes it incredibly practical to, if not like zero out your entire electrical load from non-renewable sources, like the majority for most homes. That's That's huge. Um, But it is complicated, right? Because in order to take a tax credit, you have to have a tax appetite. So there are discussions around making that into a direct pay program, kind of like they were talking about turning that tax credit for EVs into like an actual at-dealer discount, right? Yes. Um, So instead of getting money as a tax credit, you can have the money sort of directly paid to you or to the installer, and that would be massive, like the installer of your solar system. Uh, It would open up the gate to folks who don't have big tax burdens or appetites, so like, let's say retired folks, folks without big homes, uh, it would allow them to go solar, right? But also think about all the organizations that don't pay taxes at all, mm. right? Who've been losing out on that 30% credit. That's lots of non- nonprofits, uh, museums, churches, and like, you know, churches being so deeply connected to their communities locally feels like a perfect bid to like, mm-hmm. on, a, on a sort of societal scale, apply that keeping up with the Joneses kind of social pressure of like, if your place, if your like place of worship went solar, like that would be a huge motivator for you to consider that if you had not before. Um, but also like our own government buildings, right? We have so many public buildings scattered around the country, and all of them should be and can be solarized in, in a case like this. So municipalities don't pay taxes, um, so they could not previously take advantage of that tax break. So this yes. is like transformative stuff in terms of breaking down barriers and giving like opening up the category of tax breaks, or in this case, potentially payouts to an entirely new population that did not apply before. Yes. I'm so proud, too, that um, several of our leaders here at SunCommon have actually been lobbying very directly with some of our federal representation about getting these things passed. Because as you say, like it just would be such a huge boon in creating more equity and who can go solar at their home um, just because it does create, you know, it, it removes that um, uh, need of having a, a tax appetite or tax burden to participate in the incentive program. So um, I'm super proud that we are lobbying for that and, and trying to get more solar to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, there's so much good stuff in 
that bill, uh, John Larson, a director at the Rhodium Group, is quoted in New York Times article, which is down below if you want to read it, as saying that all these provisions together would get us halfway to our 2030 goal. Halfway! It would be huge to reach half of our goal in one bill. And the biggest piece, the incentive for the utilities, wouldn't make such a big impact for us here in New York or Vermont because we're actually not doing too badly with utility scale renewables, but places like the Southwest, they're kind of lagging behind. So they would benefit massively from that, that, that part of the bill. And then obviously us over at Suncom and we love that direct pay option. Yeah, that'd be amazing. So that more folks could take advantage of the 30% discount and go solar at home and at their businesses. Okay, but there is, you know, sort of an elephant in the room or a couple of elephants in the room to be perfectly honest. Um, a couple of senators, um, most notably, I think, in the news cycle of the end of last week into this week, most notably, there's a Senator uh, Kristen Cinema from Arizona who has reportedly demanded uh, some of that bill, that, that sort of transformative bill, get cut. But why? I mean, I, I look at Cinema's actual history as a politician, and for a while she was actually thumping as a pro environmentalist. Yeah. Doesn't Arizona and doesn't her constituency stand to benefit a ton from what's in the budget bill, if what you're saying is true? Like, if the Southwest really has not enjoyed this kind of utility scale renewable, what's the deal? <laughs> what's the deal with Kristen Sinema? <laughs> <laughs> like, that was like, I don't know why. What? Was that? It was sort of like Seinfeld by way of Christopher Walken. I was about to say, yeah. I, kinda, I feel like Christopher Walken lives inside of my soul. He might. Christopher Walken wants to know why. Christopher Walken is Kristen now an environmentalist you know, doing podcast I, I have with to say, Susanna Bradley. I love, I love this environment that we live in. Okay, yeah. So it's not clear what the senator from Arizona um, is doing here. Her people are saying she never requested a cut in the budget, but secret sources are saying that she is. So what's actually happening? Who knows? It's a lot of drama. Check out the New York Times article for all the deets. <laughs> but bottom line is that the cuts have been requested to get the total cost down. And now a lot of the programs and packages aimed at bringing more equity to the transition to clean energy are on the quote unquote chopping block. Yeah. And I want to, I want to like kind of lay out a few of the things that they're considering cutting out for cost saving measures, right? Yeah. It's uh, so here's what they're proposing to cut 30 billion for a green bank, right? A green bank, IE a, a financial organ to help communities finance these types of projects. That would be really helpful. Right. Uh, they also want to cut $30 billion for a civilian climate corps, like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, but with climate mitigation and adaptation projects with a pledge that half of those folks would be from communities of color. So remember, again, a few, many episodes ago when we were talking about how everyday citizens can like step up and step into the role of like not just climate activism, but like to be a part of this transformation. A civilian climate corps is basically realizing that potential. So thanks for listening to our podcast, U.S. Government. And Kristen Cinema, you should listen to our podcast. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They also that would want to be cut, really cool. That would be amazing. They also want to cut $10 billion for rural electric co-ops, basic cooperatives. So like 40 million people or so, over 10% of the population would be affected to ease pricing spikes as they make the transition over to renewables. Oh, that would be helpful, too. Amazingly transformative. And $13 billion also they want to cut for... EV charging station building, ah. including $1 billion to make sure those are also built in low-income ah. areas. It's as if they're not listening to our awesome <laughs> podcast about values and climate change. 
Dub TF. This is this is so tough though. I mean, they have to get the price of the bill down because of those stuck senators who are demanding it, Mansion. and they can't Cinema. pass it Mansion. without them. Cinema. Yeah. They want to keep the most effective pieces in place because impact, right? So the utilities incentive thing is the thing they're focusing on. And yet, look at all these really helpful programs getting cut. I mean, every single one of those would be impactful and helpful. It's I, I just do not envy these decisions. They're basically having to look at total impact versus equity almost. Yeah, but I, I have to bring in an old school economist here. There's John Maynard Keynes, Keynesian economics, yeah. Yeah. right? And usually everyone's asleep by now. So what I want to say is, I'll just <laughs> in the podcast. yeah, no, in like in the world, like, I'm going to talk Keynesian. about e- economics and like classic yeah. John Maynard Keynes. But like, I just want to bring one quote in, which is like, basically, and I'm paraphrasing and butchering and minimizing, but the quote is basically, anything we can actually do, we can afford. Mm. which is a very different way of thinking about these budget conversations. Mm -hmm. I want to like strip back all of the like politics and basically just say like what that means is Keynes when looking at a global economic system and an American economic system was saying, yeah, you know, it's political will that stops Mm. someone from spending money. All the conversation about budget, all the conversation about like, this bill is too high, who's going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. That's posturing. Mm -hmm. That means that people like Manchin and Cinema don't have the political will nor necessarily the legislative architecture to take advantage of those benefits. And so for some reason or another, and I don't want to be obtuse here with, you know, Manchin coming from a traditionally extractive state, you know, that has its economies based in pulling coal and pulling oil out of the earth, right? And Cinema, who is fighting a fraught political landscape locally in Arizona, I want to just put out there that they are, yes, prioritizing you know, impact over equity, but it's the only thing, in my opinion, that is preventing them from taking that extra step is political will and capital, not budget. They argue about budget. We are at the end of a year of spending trillions of dollars to contain the damage of a basic public health crisis that was completely fraught by politics and social engineering, not by public health measures, right? This is literally like someone did an estimate of like what the American holdings are. It's something like 273, $275 trillion if you like calculated what we're really worth in real terms. We dropped about $3 trillion of that to like keep people at home and keep people as safe as they could so they wouldn't go out and gargle bleach and put like gasoline in like plastic garbage bags. So oh we gosh. know the money is there. What we're lacking right now is political will and leadership strong leadership from house majority to president to whatever to move these two stuck i will say in in mansion's case likely a crony of coal and gas and for cinema someone who's i maybe just feels like she's stuck between a rock and a hard place i'm sorry to rant i'm sorry to bring in keys strong opinions i have strong opinions on this and honestly we maybe we are look in your case you're saying like okay total i want to be fair here total impact is important and equity has a smaller visible impact. So maybe we don't lift up the people we've been stepping on, right? But at least it's clean energy. Like, which, this is like a perfect example of thinking, of the thinking that got us to this place in the first place. These are shortcut measures, right? Fossil fuels have been justified forever because like we need them and like our lifestyle. 
dissolution to pollution is dilution. I'm like a rapper of crapper. Anyway, of simply carting off harmful waste products to communities we don't care about. Like, this is the thing that got us into this mess. We cannot keep disappearing our problems into vulnerable spaces, right? They're not going to disappear forever. Like a landfill that finally, like, starts, like, leaking mutant ooze. I'm not going to, I don't want to go to a darker place than I already am at. But, like, it's basically the end justifies the means thinking. And that's exactly, I think, what got us here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I feel that. And I appreciate your strong opinions on it. And it does, in some ways, it's like, why do we have to work within this ridiculous system where two people have all this power yeah. uh, when it's, like, going to save the world? <sighs> like, it's, wow, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think some of it is, uh, you know, the thinking that got us here and that's stuff that we need to change. But I also feel like it's not quite one-to-one in this case sure. because we're trying to shift a big systemic problem and it needs big systemic change to make that happen. And I do think some of the programs that say this benefit is going specifically to this community here that we have actively harmed with fossil fuel infrastructure and so many other systems, that's definitely part of the systemic change. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that the ultimate solution here is that we simply need to all use clean energy. Right, right. There can't be a choice. There can be no opting in. It just needs to be what's available for everyone. Yeah, and the cost of opting out of clean energy should be so high that it's eliminated for a majority of the population. Right, or even that you can't opt out. I mean, yeah. Like yeah. now. There would be like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, go ahead. It's like, it's very difficult to opt. Well, it's not very, but... You know, 50 years ago, yeah, exactly. you couldn't opt out of fossil fuels. Exactly. That was there was not even a structure that would allow you to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, a very effective way of making that wholesale change is to incentivize the utilities to simply offer clean energy. And that's what the big provision they're focusing on will do, right, right. you know. So I'm not saying that the other provisions aren't important. Quite the opposite. They are important. But I don't think we have to pit them against each other. Like, I think this kind of, like, duality of, like, well, do we do the equity or do we do, Mm. like, impact? Like, I I think that's a false way of framing it. If the utilities started providing 80% clean energy, everyone will benefit from that. Um, I mean, I guess there is, I guess there is a scenario in which they take the 80% clean energy and they only give it to... Uh, the haves, you know, and then the 20% dirty energy they keep with the have-nots. There is possibly that scenario. Um, But I think that's one of many scenarios. And there are many, many, like infinitely other possibilities that could happen where the utilities providing 80% clean energy or more Mm -hmm. actually lifts everyone and brings so many more people to using clean energy. Yeah. So I think they're all good programs. They're all going to help shift the problem. It's not that we don't need to support equity. It's just like, these are all good and they all need to happen. Yeah, and I guess I I will qualify my saltiness because like every single solution that we've been talking through or at least every single equity problem that we've been pointing out in the last few episodes, it really just stings. Like the the billion dollar for EV charging stations, like the, the sort of awareness that I have now that what we're essentially doing is saying like, this is the class of Americans that's gonna be allowed onto these new you know, roads and highways that are full of charging stations and like 
we're encouraging so much of a head start for folks that already have a head start. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to leave these already sort of vulnerable or disadvantaged communities like even further in the dust. And that to me is just like, it just, I don't know. It's a hard pill to swallow. And I absolutely get your perspective where it's like, these shouldn't be mutually exclusive conversations. And shifting the utilities does create the most seismic positive impact for all. I get that. It, it actually, it doesn't just shift the problem. It shifts the scale of the problem. It reduces right. the scale of the problem. We need that fast, good, glad it's there. I'm just thinking like, are we essentially like burying landmines for ourselves that we're going to have mm -hmm. to like figure out in the future again? Right. That's, that's all I'm kind of saying. There's such yeah. good provisions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I think it's really important that we include provisions to make sure the communities that were most harmed by fossil fuels get their share of these incentives. And that's not typically how incentives roll out. Yeah. So 100%. Yeah. And I'm just thinking like this, you know, doing this report in the same, we're doing this podcast episode in the same week that there was the report of like the happy couple from like, I think it was Virginia or something that like, we're trying to sell like nuclear attack plans, submarine plans, and like hide them in like half-eaten peanut butter sandwiches. The <laughs> FBI caught them, but it's like each of those attack class nuclear-powered subs cost three billion plus to make. Wow. How many attack subs do we need, right? Really, right? Like if the if some of the biggest looming threats in our near future are not necessarily hot conflict, right? Like war, but like if we can't seem to figure out a migration crisis like think about all of the problems that three billion dollars would solve if it was diverted from attack submarines that whose plans are being ferreted in peanut butter sandwiches for bitcoin oh and we gotta do an episode on bitcoin but like <laughs> I'm, I'm angry but like that's the thing it's like are we really pointing ourselves at solving the wrong problems right now are we mm -hmm. guarding ourselves around around the wrong threats mm -hmm. i don't know how big a threat militarily China's ever going to be, right? Or that Russia will ever be. But here we are in this world where we're like balancing like a potential looming hot conflict and like the fate of all humanity on earth, mm -hmm. our ability to survive. Like there will be no war if we can't breathe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like you're taking a page out of uh, Greta Thunberg's book. Greta, I mean, Greta, she you know? does it better than, oh, that was the worst. That Greta was the worst. does it better. She does it better than all of us could. That was that was it. That was my. You are part. becoming a climate change rapper. I'm a I'm a climate change rapper, and that's you know if I'm feeling kind of dapper. <laughs> um, yeah. That was not very good. No. But you know, I think she would agree that like it's time to reprioritize, guys. Like let's let's put these problems in the right order to solve. Um, I think you know I maybe I'm just naively optimistic, but I remain hopeful that even if all the equity provisions don't get included in you know, what's being passed right now, that this isn't the last opportunity to work on it. Because even if everything in that bill got passed, we'd only get halfway to the goal. Yes. So the plan has always been to do more, right? The government's going to do more to legislate this change. So there's still an opportunity to make it happen. Yeah, totally. And I think that, yeah, remaining in that sort of hopeful posture is great. Yeah, hopefully we'll, this isn't the last time we'll have the ability to make legislation, you know, or new programs. When I think about you, listener, like I think about this kind of window that the Democrats seem to have to pass the most progressive version of their legislation. Like a lot of people say that 
this is the time, i.e. the first term of a president before midterm elections. And, you know, cinema in particular might be looking at this from the posture of her ability to remain, you know, in office in a state that was definitely narrowly won. Um, But, you know, you have a voice, you know, you have to get in touch with your senator and reps who are working on these issues right now. And even if you're not in one of those, you know, battleground states for this issue, you can't like, you know, rising waters raise all boats like you can make noise and you can organize even from out of state to make this kind to put this kind of pressure on the democrats honestly to squarely push this through and if we want to avoid the thinking of the past you know that's gotten us here it's important that we get lots of new ideas and perspectives you know into that mix we see this even in the sort of like the post george floyd moment you know and the year that followed there was a lot of words said and a lot of like commitments made by companies and governments and individuals to commit to anti-racism. And a startling majority of the people that have made those statements have kind of like fallen off of those commitments unceremoniously. And that speaks to, you know, a similar trend that we're seeing here where like issues of equity, issues of justice do get deprioritized versus yeah. roads bridges and you know basically working within the infrastructure that we've already created and if the infrastructure that we've already created including utilities were based on extractive abusive one-sided profiteering goals then we're reinforcing those systems every time we put our attention there as the big fix now look i get it i get that it solves a big chunk of the problem and it reduces the scale of our carbon outputs and puts very 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 clear you know motivations and repercussions in place to motivate that move. So I'm, I'm for it. And I want the people who are listening to this podcast in over 20 countries right now. Uh, we had a pretty big spike in uh, listenership as we've gone to the weekly level. So hello, everybody from everywhere. Hello. It's time. This is it. It's time to jump up, you know, in every state that's, you know, tuning in, like jump up and make noise. It's the window is, is rapidly closing and we've got these nine years to hit these goals. So let's make it happen. Yeah, I love that. Make your voice heard. And I guess as always, uh, I'm Tavi. I'm Suzanne. And we're here repping SunCommon. Uh, SunCommon is a solar installer uh, in New York's Hudson Valley, capital region, and most of Vermont. You can hit us up at suncommon.com. See you on the next episode. See you then.